Hello and welcome to this Faber Poetry Podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest in this program is Lavinia Greenlaw. Lavinia's collections include The Casual Perfect and Minsk, which was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot, Forward and Whitbread Poetry Prizes. And in 2014, she published a version of Chaucer's Troilus and Crusade, entitled A Double Sorrow, which was shortlisted for the Costa Poetry Award. She's also the author of novels and genre-expanding non-fiction, but when we met at Faber's offices recently, it was to discuss Lavinia's first two collections of poetry, her debut, Night Photograph, which was published in 1993 and shortlisted for the Whitbread and Forward Prizes, and A World Where News Travelled Slowly, which appeared four years later and whose title poem won a Forward Prize. Both books are reissued in February 2016, which provided a good opportunity to invite Lavinia to reflect on her poetic practice, then and now, and the direction her career has taken. I began by asking her to tell me about how she came to be a published poet in the first place. I never thought of having a career as a writer. I just wrote. I wrote from when I was a child, stories, poems, plays, lots of very bad poetry when I was a teenager. And then I was lucky enough to connect with the poetry kind of workshop and little magazine world and sent some poems off to places and got them accepted. Then I was lucky because I received an Eric Gregory award and one of the judges was Christopher Reed, the then poetry editor at Faber. And he was a wonderful editor in that, looking back, I can see that he made me more myself rather than an imitation of anybody else. He also took his time and he just worked with me on poems for a couple of years and then one day said, I think this is starting to look like a book. Tell me a little bit then about that process of discovering what yourself was. Was that something you felt latent but were encouraged to to, to bring out and discover? I didn't have a conscious sense of myself as a poet until people started telling me what I wrote about. And they in particular said that I was a poet who wrote about science. And I was taken aback by that, partly because my first book in particular has a lot of scientific reference and language in it. But that's simply natural to me in that I grew up in a household of scientists and doctors. We talked about these things. I'm rather analytical. But what I'm interested in is not science per se, but the shared imperatives of mapping and measuring the world and making sense of the unfamiliar, really, the things we meet. Um, So I was rather taken aback to be reduced to a poet who writes about science and found myself consciously moving away from how I was being described. I think there's a powerful innocence in writing before you are published, before you've had a public response to your work, before you are told who you are. And I miss that. (laughs) I've sort of recovered it, actually, by simply not caring. Because once you're published, you are described and there is an obligation to self-describe, isn't there? Yes, people, uh, the first question people ask often is, what do you write about? Of course, most poets don't have a list of subjects. They have preoccupations they can barely articulate themselves but they're driven to write and they're writing 
connects at a fundamental level, whether the subject be, you know, the sky or a bus stop, but um, it's all coming from the same place in in a poet, uh, in the individual poet. But yes, it is it is one of the most difficult things being asked, what sort of poet are you? What sort of things do you write about? And I, I feel that particularly in interviewing poets, that they've written the poems and they are there. And in a way, that really ought to be self-sufficient. And anything that comes, anything, anything that comes in addition is, is, is supplementary and perhaps, and perhaps OTOs. I think it's the nature of a poem to be, well, to be an experience rather than an explanation. That doesn't mean it's imprecise, it's not vague, it's a very good form at describing vagueness, but it's not vague. And that it should operate on the reader in the way that it activates things in the reader, but, but it's not answering a question. So poets can't sort of pick up a poem and say this my this poem is about x or y because it isn't it's using x or y to activate something i've read interviews with you in which you've talked about the arrival of a poem and that sort of physical sense you get the sort of prickle that that a poem is coming but what i wanted to ask you about was then what happens in order to give that that prickle a form can you can you say a little bit about what happens after that intuition that a, mm. there is a poem you, that you want to give shape to? Talk about the giving shape. The more excited I am about the first idea I have for a poem, the more suspicious I am of it. If it's very pleasing, I think maybe that's all it is. So I will push it hard. Sometimes for years I won't touch it until I feel that it really has something, or, or until I've understood why it's stuck around, why I keep thinking about it. Sometimes an, a, a thought, a phrase will arrive and you almost have to turn it over and wear it down to get to the nub of it. And then you think, yes, that's what it's about. Or you start writing and discover why it's there, why it's demanding your attention. You very rarely know beyond that physical instinct why you need to explore this particular thing. Quite often with me, one thing will arrive like reading the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova. And I won't think anything of it until something sits beside it, such as an ice storm. And the way that they light each other gives me the form of the poem. So there's a sort of spark, those two things sort yes. of sparking off each other and the poem is, is, in, then, is, in, yes. is in that spark. Yes. I read something very interesting that you wrote about sometimes there are ideas that you, you feel you have to work and work through, even though you know they're not going to eventuate in a finished poem. Now, tell me about that. What, what, what function, or is function the wrong word, but what is happening there? They're, they're more than just exercises. They're more than just sort of flexing your poetic muscles. And I think it's about travelling a thought or a question and thinking that in this particular instance, the process is what I will learn from and it will sharpen something for me or it will exclude something for me. But the words, it's, it's when I feel that it's coming from a slightly more cerebral place somehow or a more conceptual place than, than the, the visceral nature of, of what feels like a true poem appearing. And I'm intrigued, but I'm not unsettled. And then I think, I need to find out more about this. I need to make sense of this somehow, but I kind of know that it will just sit in my notebook with a line through it. 
When you look back on those those first two collections, you know, you, you came in today and you, you picked them up and here they are physical objects that were printed, well, in one case, more than 20 years ago. I mean, what thoughts and responses do, they, do those collections provoke in you today? That I'll never write like that again, and that's a good and a bad thing. That there is there is that innocence in the first book of having no external sense of myself as a writer. There are awkwardnesses and exposures and risks which I would now maybe protect myself from, and that's not necessarily a good thing. And in a way, I think you probably go through a sort of phase in, of, of being quite careful, um, not meaning to be, but just just trying to rebalance the sense of just yeah, trying to get rid of the self-consciousness, um, but actually by, by reining yourself in, which is the wrong solution. And then I think you come to a phase where you just think, damn it, I, I need, I, if I'm going to go on writing in whatever time I have left to me, I'm going to push it as far as I can and go as deep as I can. And if it, if I make a fool of myself or I make a mess of it, that's less important than really not remaining in the same place, doing the same dance, making the same gestures over and over again. You've used the word innocence today, and the other word I, I saw you use in the past of that first collection was fierceness. Tell me about the fierceness, wh where, where it came from, and it's something you think that diminished over time. I think um, the fierceness in my early work comes from its urgency, that I was possessed by the need to do this thing, to make these things, my struggle with language, which continues, was consuming. And I was also completely captivated by the world of poetry as I had was reading it and meeting poets and realizing there were people with similar wiring to me and realizing that I had found a form for this core of myself that needed to be given one. And there have been times when you've concentrated on fiction, you've also written non-fiction, mm -hmm. but poetry is your essential core? Is that, is, yeah. you've, there's never been a time where you felt you've sort of gone, you've sort of gone on and maybe, you're, maybe your career is going to take in a different direction and poetry is something you will have done but no longer be a practitioner. No, never that. I never chose to write anything other than poetry. One day I sat down to write a poem about a girl who jumped through a window, which is something I did as a child by accident. And as I was writing it, she became a character and it became a story. And eight years later, it was a novel. It started as a kind of exercise. I was curious and then I became completely gripped by it. And also got rid of a kind of narrative drive in myself. My earlier, earliest poems are quite narrative, but the narrative drive went into this fiction and kind of freed up the poetry. Uh, so it felt like a necessary displacement of something. And I've enjoyed it very much, and I'm currently finishing a new novel. But 
I'm not even sure it's a novel, actually. I think nowadays I, the, my prose and poetry are moving closer and closer together. Each book arises instinctively as if out of my sleep and finds its form. And the nonfiction I've written is very strange and is neither memoir nor essay nor poem. The fiction also. That's what I think. I don't really think you can say I'm going to write a novel. I think something arises and you find out it is a novel or it is a poem. But I would always say that poetry is my primary form. I'm interested in what you said about your prose and your poetry coming close together, because I've seen you quoted before as saying as as resisting any kind of description of your prose as poetic mm-hmm. and 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 it not being described as that being being a good thing. So, in what way in what way are they beginning to resemble one another? When I published my first novel, I was very pleased when another poet said to me, "It's not a poet's novel at all," because I really wanted it to make the best of narrative devices really that's what i wanted to explore and it's all about storytelling 15 years later i'm writing a very different kind of prose again i'm i suppose it would be described in a general way as poetic in inverted commas which is not a word i enjoy but it's more the poet poetic nature of it lies in the fact that its components sit beside each other and work in that way rather than connect up as links in a chain in a conventional narrative sense. And it's very much about image and object and the power of these things for us and and the, the fact that we might think of ourselves as articulate, perceptive, sophisticated people, but the level at which we truly operate is, is still fairly much a mystery to us. I know you're interested in visual art and you're interested in music, but I, maybe in conclusion, I could just ask you, what do you think that poetry can do that those other art forms can't? Because um, I, know, I know you've talked about those other art forms as being almost like a rest from language and a rest from, from wrestling with poetry. But what is it that gives poetry its particular power? The images that language creates are specific because they're made out of words. Therefore, they put the reader in a very particular place. And if you use those images well, then you can activate something in the reader to do with essential human experience, which will feel far more local to them in a weird way. Your imagery is your imagery, theirs is theirs. But if you use what you have, you can make a small room in which they will see themselves more clearly and it will feel far more personal, I think, than looking at a painting which can have an equally powerful effect of a very different kind. The same with music. I think those things speak to us in a more general way, but the specificity of language is something we respond to with a specificity of our own. I was talking to Lavinia Greenlaw. For more information about all of Lavinia's books, visit faber.co.uk. You can make sure you never miss the Faber podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page 
and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to well over 100 hours of content and includes several interviews with Faber poets, among them Joe Shapcott, Don Patterson and David Harsent. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.